You've got questions and we've got answers. That's right, it's the All Questions Show and you're in the right place because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Thursday. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This here is David Hansen. David, this is show number 101. How are you feeling? Do you feel old? Do you feel over the hill? Very over the hill. Just going to call it a day. Well, let's get you back. What do I have to work for now? (laughs) Nothing. 200, 250, 500. 500. 500, there it is. All right, well, let's, let's get you feeling a little bit better. We've got some questions today. Some of them are from our Ask a Fool series. Uh, some of them are from our own listeners. Let's go to the first question here. This one comes from Ask a Fool. This is from our Facebook page. Mary Lee Bankston asks, Are online banks a good place for emergency funds? Or is keeping it in a bank savings account or checking account better? David. They're, yes. they're about the same. They're, they're the same. Online banks, uh, if you look at a, a bank of internet, that's an FDIC-insured bank. It's not any less secure than the Bank of America that's down the street from you. You can still get your money. It's still insured by the FDIC at the end of the day. So emergency funds, it doesn't really matter whether you choose to do it at Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Bank of Internet, or even like a company E-Trade that has checking accounts. Wherever uh, you want to do it is, is fine. I can actually speak from personal experience on that. We, for a long time, had our emergency savings and our emergency funds in ING Direct. That is now Capital One 360. Went through that transfer. Still have it with Capital One 360. Basically, an on, Capital One now is, it's, I mean, it's more of a, a bank bank, uh, more so than what ING Direct was. But it's an online bank account. Serves our purposes. Gets the job done. Uh, FDIC insured. Nothing for us to worry about. I guess we should say if... Make sure if you have an emergency fund, you want to be able to get to it. Maybe sure. not tie it up in a five-year CD or something well, yeah, like I mean, it's, yes. Always be aware of kind of what you're putting it into, whether it be online or right. in the branch. But if it's, if, if it's just a regular account, you should yep. be able to uh, get it in and out. Indeed. Uh, going on to the second question. second question is also the Ask a Fool from Facebook. This is from William Forsyth. He says, what is your opinion of Annaly Capital Management for an income stock? I'll let you start with this one, David, since you are an owner of Annaly. I am. And don't know William's situation in terms of what's the income for. If he's a retiree, kind of taking that income and using it to go buy groceries, that's a little bit of a different situation than someone like myself who I'm not dependent on that income. So for someone who's a retiree, I don't know if it's maybe the best option. It's going to grab your, your eye and your attention because of the yield, a double-digit yield when your savings account that we just talked about is paying 0.01%. So you're not going to get anything from the bank. Uh, but I put a graph up here if he's watching. Um, this is Procter & Gamble's dividend, like the actual dividend they're paying out, and Annaly Capital. So Annaly is the blue line. You see that can be pretty volatile. That's because Annaly Capital Management is a mortgage REIT, and as a REIT, they're required to pay out at least 90% of their earnings. So what they're earning is pretty much exactly what they're going to pay out in a dividend. So as that fluctuates, the dividend is going to fluctuate, as opposed to a company like Procter & Gamble, more consistent, they make earnings, they can pay out some of those retained earnings, and you can see that's a pretty steady march up over the last 10 years, much more consistent than a company like Annaly. It's not going to give you 10%, mm-hmm. but it's going to be a more consistent income-generating stock. Uh, so maybe not a great one for someone who's really dependent on that income to go out and buy groceries. The stability of the income and the, exactly. the dependability. And actually for Procter & Gamble, which if I'm not mistaken is a dividend aristocrat, mm-hmm. that chart probably goes way, way back, back even farther than 10 years. Uh, the one thing I'll say about Annaly, too, and a lot of the other 
not just the mortgage REITs, but high yield stocks in general, oftentimes what can be a little bit tricky is that that dividend rate, the dividend yield, tends to stay about the same. Right. And, and that, that can be a little bit misleading because what ends up happening is what we've seen with Annaly and some of the other uh, mortgage REITs recently, for, for example, is the dividend keeps dropping, but then the stock drops along with it. Right. So you, you've got a, a lower stock price, lower dividend, the yield stays the same. Right. So you can be looking at this and say, well, it had an 11% yield last year, it has an 11% yield now, so I can count on this 11% yield. Yes, you probably can count on the fact that the yield will stay right around there, but your yield, what you right. pay today versus the dividends you get next year, may or may not still be in that range. Right. If you look at Annaly, if you would have bought that stock when it was at $20 a couple of years ago and it's paying $1.30 in dividends annualized today, mm-hmm. that's a yield of around 6%. That's not the double-digit yield that you're getting on the stock price today. Right. All right. Third question. This is another Ask a Fool. This one is from Kieran McDonald. Kieran asks, please discuss the upside potential of Bank of Ireland. I'm from Ireland, and it is in a unique situation. It is the only bank left trading in Ireland. This year, it will post its first profits since 2007, when it posted a billion euro uh, in profits. Its market cap today is at 70% of pre-crash. I love the fact Wilbur Ross and Prem Watsa own 20% of the firm. What do you think of the upside potential? Could be. Uh, could be. I, I'm not a. I'm not an expert. He probably knows more about the, the Irish economy than I do. Uh, but it's an interesting, interesting situation. The taxpayers of over in Ireland still own around 14 percent of the company. That's a lot less than we, we talked about uh, allied Irish banks, which I think the question was from Kieran as well last time we might have been. About. Yeah. Uh, that's allied almost, Irish is definitely that's almost thing. entirely owned by uh, the Irish government there and the taxpayers. So only 14 percent here. Uh, The government has a preferred stake as well that the bank is kind of actively trying to refinance so they don't have the government overhang as long anymore. So profits are coming back, still a little bit of a messy situation with the government involved, so maybe a turnaround situation. I don't know. What do you think about the situation? Kieran's asking about upside potential, and what I'll say to that is if I could keep... I feel like I should be able to jam this even harder. Um... There's huge, I mean, there's huge upside potential. Let me, let me say that. The problem is, is that when you're investing in anything, you have to think about the upside potential and the downside potential. Uh, and when looking at this bank and thinking about investing over the long term, I get a little squeamish. Uh, I think part of it is that you're looking at buying the best house on the worst block. And for anybody that, that follows real estate cliches, what you're supposed to be doing is buying the smallest house in the nicest neighborhood or the the, the least expensive house in the nicest neighborhood. Now, granted, this is coming from a guy who is uh, very high on Citigroup uh, and Citigroup stock right now. So take that with a grain of salt. But when I look at the results out of uh, Bank of Ireland, they're not pretty. They're they're better than uh, most of the other, I guess, all of the other Irish banks. But non-performing loans, basically off the charts, compared to most other uh, countries in the world, their banking systems. Uh, in terms of banks being a play on the economy, you mentioned the Irish economy. I don't think we're going to be getting back to seeing the Celtic tiger roaring anytime soon, but the economy is recovering. So, so I think you've got potentially a positive tailwind there. Uh, GDP growth hasn't been particularly impressive the last couple of years, but I think in Western Europe, we're starting to see the roots of an economy take place after a pretty lousy few years. Mm-hmm. Unemployment still very, very high in Ireland, but coming down. 
So I think there is an economic tailwind that, that could help out there. That should help the housing market there. That should help a lot of these non-performing loans, a lot of the balance sheet problems that Bank of Ireland is having. So is there upside? Yes, I definitely think there's upside here. But I'm, but I'm a little uncomfortable with the, with the, um, the risk-taking, the risk uh, assessment at the bank that they got themselves into this position in the first place. I would probably be looking at banks from, from other countries that uh, went through the credit crisis a little bit better than, than the Irish banks. But again, again, take that with a grain of salt. I own Citigroup. The government reducing a state could be another tailwind. I mean, we saw that with AIG, just to get that stigma off, that overhang that the government is holding 15%, almost 15% of kind of the outstanding shares. It's an overhang. As that kind of reduces, that could be kind of something think, behind their sales. I think one thing that Kieran may, may want to do, which I haven't had a chance to do yet with Bank of Ireland, is, is examine what's going on there from an operational perspective. What is the bank trying to do? What is the, what is the competitive advantage of this bank uh, where does management see it being in five years? Um, how is it being operated? Similar to the way, uh, I keep bringing up Citigroup, similar to the way that I'm looking at Citigroup. Citigroup's got new management in there. I believe they're running the bank in a different way, taking the bank in a positive direction. If you see that kind of thing happening at Bank of Ireland, maybe that puts all the pieces together and, and makes that a better investment than I'm giving it credit for. All right. Next question. Next question. This is from Chris Netherton. Yeah, I'm never good at names. I'm sorry. You're terrible. You, what you, is the fair market value of MasterCard? We don't own MasterCard. You don't own it. I don't think you do. What's the fair market value? Is it fairly valued now? What are your thoughts? I, I, this is a, it's such a difficult question because you sit down, you can run the numbers, you can build out a whole model and say, well, here's the value that I come up with for MasterCard stock, and it's probably going to be wrong. Uh, for partic- how, do you, how do you personally define fair value? If someone says, what's the fair value of that? What does that, what does that mean to you? Is there any definition that you have on that? Because some people have different definitions. This, the fair value, what it would give you a reasonable return, or the fair value, exactly what it's worth today. Right. It's, it's a tough question for me because I, I came up, I started out in investment banking and private equity where you live in a world of, of multi-tab Excel models and you're, you're doing everything down to the you know, employee counts and how much you're paying each individual employee and what the benefits are, all to come to this one particular number to say, well, here's, what we think that, here's the number that we think this is worth. And the problem with those kind of models and that kind of output is that it's kind of a garbage in, garbage out sort of thing because always what you're doing is you're looking towards the future. And the future is inherently unpredictable. So you're putting in all of these numbers, predicting the future. And what a lot of it just comes down to is you're saying, well, I think it'll grow at this rate and you know, blah, blah, blah. This is, what, this is what it's going to be worth down the road. So I think I try to balance that one side today, so that, that highly analytical side, with sort of the, what Warren Buffett has said. Um, and I'm paraphrasing this. I forget the exact quote. But he's, ba- he's basically said that, if a guy walks in the room, you don't need to know that he's 300 pounds to be able to say that he's overweight. Right. And that's how I kind of think about uh, fair value. And, and to, to abuse Buffett a little bit more here, um, Buffett also talks about that it's better to buy a, uh, a great company at a fair price than a fair company at a great price. And so I think about that in conjunction with that, that I'm not looking necessarily to, to find just any company that I can buy at a, at a uh, discounted price. I think on the show the other day, we were talking about uh, Hartford Insurance. I was talking about Hartford Insurance and its earnings. Hartford Insurance, it's a fine company. It, it, 
you know, and they're they're going through a turnaround. I think there there are things to like in terms of where it's going, mm-hmm. but in the competitive atmosphere versus the the other property and casualty insurers out there, as an investor, I don't see uh, Hartford having any sort of great competitive advantage that I would buy that over another insurance company, even though it's trading at a discount to book value, which could be considered a great price. Right. So when it comes to Mastercard, um, I look at the I look at the nature of the business, I look at how it's run, I look at the growth potential, I look at the potential market size that the, the credit card industry can grow into globally, and then I look at the price, and on a purely numbers basis, I'd probably say, and, and I have said, I, I've said ever since MasterCard came public, this looks like a really expensive stock. Um, but weighed against the potential, I think that this probably looks like a reasonable price today. I think if he's looking for a number, and like you said, it's garbage. I just, out, garbage I, yeah, out. I just, I don't did have not, a number. I, I dodged that whole question. <laughs> dodged the whole <laughs> if idea. There's a, if there's a number. process that, that Chris can do, I would say it's thinking more probabilities. Don't try to say this is what yeah. it's worth today. Look out five to 10 years with MasterCard and say, well, if operating income grows at 10% a year, and I mean, we can't forecast what the market multiples will be in 10 years. It's just, we're not going to do it. We're going to be wrong more than we're right. Mm-hmm. So look at the probabilities. Well, what are the chances it trades at 20 times operating earnings in 10 years? Mm. What are the chances it loses market value over the next five years? So think about in probabilities and then try to just get closer to, is today's price reasonable? And you can, yeah, I think that's a good way to go about it. So in, ter- in terms of the uh, market multiples in particular, because those are very unpredictable, uh, but then also in terms of the, the potential growth. So here's how fast the industry has been growing now. Uh, here's one scenario where it could grow this fast. Here's another scenario where it can grow this fast, and look at how that can feed into um, market share. Here's what uh, Mastercard's market share is today versus down the road, and you can back that all into. So here's how fast I think their uh, the company's profit will grow, and then apply those market multiples, mm-hmm. and you sort of you know can work yourself back around to like you said, figuring out whether today's is a reasonable price or not. All right. So we successfully we successfully dodged that question. Almost I think entirely. the answer is we don't know, and, most, yeah. and no one knows what the fair value of Mastercard is today. But you can get comfortable with what you think it is and what the potential is. There you go. And I think we got one more question. Right? One more. Last question from the WTMI mailbag. This ah, uh, there you go. This is from Tom in Wisconsin. It's got to be cold there. It's got to be really. Sorry, cold. Tom. Yeah, I was hoping you could share your thoughts on peer-to-peer lending. I am maxing out my 401k each year and have a separate brokerage account with 20 or so stocks that I really like. I'm now at a point where I have some money. I'm looking to invest, but I am having a hard time finding a stock that I like. A coworker mentioned he has been using a peer-to-peer lending site for almost three years and has averaged 12 to 14% return annually. While that lags the stock market over that time frame, it's still a pretty solid return and probably a bit more consistent than the stock market on a year-to-year basis. What are your thoughts on peer-to-peer lending as a small part of someone's overall portfolio? First of all, I want, to Good give, news. I want to give him a round of applause for multiple things in there. Maxing out, maxing out the 401k, that's fantastic. That is fantastic. Being interested in investing, having a brokerage account on the side, that's great. Uh, not settling on stocks. He said, I can't find a stock that I like. A lot of people, they'll get, oh, I just got to buy something. I got to buy something. It looks cheap. I'll buy it. I think that's great that he's being Are you talking about me right now? That's, is is that a yeah. side swipe at me? No, 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 no. Uh, but I think that's some great lessons there. In terms of you saying that 12%, not bad, more consistent than the market, with peer-to-peer lending, we, it's not a huge sample size. We haven't been doing this for 
decades and decades and decades that really show us what are the true long-term returns that you can reasonably expect with peer-to-peer lending. With the stock market, it's been around for a long time, so we can have a reasonable rate of return there. Um, we, we answered a similar question a couple of shows ago. I think it's you could make it somewhat like junk bonds, if you will. I think that's how I think about it. Not, I don't want to say junk bonds, but they're not investment-grade bonds, but it's yeah, it's a loan that you're getting an interest payment on. It's not the same as having an equity investment where you can grow with the business and earnings. So I would view it as that as if you're thinking about it with your portfolio. I mean, what do you think? Well, actually, good news for Tom is uh, we, have, we actually interviewed um, Ron Suber, mm-hmm. uh, the head of institutional sales from Prosper, one of the uh, key online right. uh, peer-to-peer lending yeah, Lending club and... Prosper. Exactly. So t- on tomorrow's show, on Friday's show, we're going to have a, a portion of that interview with Ron. I think uh, WTMI listeners and Tom in particular would probably be really interested in that. Uh, to, a couple things to, t- to take into account here. I, I think after um, talk, after doing some research on Prosper, doing some talking with uh, Ron, I'm more comfortable with the idea of, of using peer of investing in peer to peer lending. On the other hand got to consider that just like any other credit product, if you're looking at returns over the past few years, this has been the upswing of the credit cycle. This is a good time to be a lender. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is when loans will perform. And actually, if you go on Prosper's site, and cr- uh, credit to Prosper for putting both the good and the bad, yeah. they have a table on the site that shows performance of loans vintage, I think it's 2009 and on, and then they show loans vintage pre-crisis, and they show the returns on them. Now, if you were investing in loans on Prosper pre-crisis, the returns were, were negative. Right. Um, but they've been much, much more attractive following the crisis. So I think you've got to take that into account when you think about your return, uh, when, you, when you think about your return projections for that. Um, I don't think it's a bad idea if you're looking for other outlets for uh, investing, but I think you've got to take it all into account, including that you've got credit cycles here and you've got a plan for what happens when the credit cycle turns down. Good idea. Thanks. It's an interesting space. We've heard Lending Club come out and say uh, they're they're going to go public in the next year or so. They've basically said it. Uh, so these will be in the news more often now. Okay. Well, that's the show for today. But uh, WTMIers, anybody listening to this show, can email us a question. Either we'll answer it on one of our regular shows or on one of these all-question shows. Email address is WTMI at fool.com. And that's it, right? That is it. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This year is David Hansen. Thanks for watching. We will see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.